Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. We are very pleased to have with us today Professor Marion Turner. Professor Turner was a fellow by examination at Magdalen College, Oxford, and previously taught at King's College in London. Professor Turner holds a tutorial fellowship currently at Oxford and focuses her work and research on late medieval secular literature and history. Professor Turner is also a trustee of the New Chaucer Society. She is the author of numerous works, including a handbook of Middle English studies, Chaucerian conflict languages of antagonism in late 14th century London. And today we will be talking with Professor um, Turner about her award-winning book, Chaucer, A European Life, published by Princeton University Press. Uh, this um, richly researched, nuanced uh, study of Chaucer was the winner of the British Academy Rose Mary Brache Prize of 2020. Um, Professor Turner, just a little bit about your background and how you became interested in Chaucer. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. So I, I think that what really drew me to Chaucer was when I first studied Chaucer as a late teenager, I just found it very surprising. I found that it, I expected certain things from medieval literature and Chaucer was doing quite different things. So when I read some of his poems and I found that he was talking about the problems of authorship and the importance of thinking about readerly interpretation and the fact that we shouldn't just listen to authorities, we should listen to lots of different perspectives. I wasn't expecting that from a 14th century author and I found that really intriguing. And then the more that I studied him, I think the more I was drawn in because there's just so much variety in his work. So whatever you're interested in, you can find it there because unlike most authors, he wrote in a huge range of genres, a huge range of voices, so many different kinds of texts. So you can read romance, bawdy, rude fablio stories, saints' lives, scientific tracts, philosophical translations, comic stories, you know, all kinds of different things. So there's a really rich variety. And of course, he also lived at a time of enormous change, just such an interesting moment in history. So let, let, let's, if you can, set the scene. We're, we're 14th century. Um, Chaucer is born around 1342. So we're mid 14th century. What, what does England look like? What does, I know it's a very broad question, what does the world look like? What does Chaucer's world look like at that point? So, as you say, Chaucer was born in the middle of the 14th century and everything that happened to him was affected by this dramatic seismic change that happened in Europe, in Asia, in North Africa, when Chaucer was about six years old and this was the plague. So, of course, this is um, very relevant for all of us thinking about global pandemics at the moment. But the global pandemic that hit in the late 1340s was quite different to COVID-19. The Black Death was a disease that killed maybe a third, maybe a half of the populations in the countries in which it raged. Um, and after the Black Death, 
all kinds of things changed within society. So Chaucer grew up in a changing social world where now, because because of what had happened in the Black Death, there were now fewer labourers, but the same amount of land to farm. So you get social change because people can command better wages, they can move around. They it, It's actually better economically for the survivors, despite all the horrors that they had been through. More people start to move to towns. There are more opportunities for women. And you see the government trying to pass laws to, to for instance, to limit wages, to pre-plague levels, to limit what kinds of clothes people can wear to try to stop social climbing and social change. So this is a really enormously exciting time. And in terms of Chaucer's own world, so Chaucer was born in London, the son of a merchant. So his father was a vintner, a wine merchant. So he was brought up in a, a well-off, you know, very comfortable home, but not an aristocratic home, not a noble home. And what I was just talking about also relates to thinking about the world at this time. As I said, the plague traveled across the world. You know, it came you know, from the from from Britain's perspective, it came from the Far East, so across China through the trade routes and then was brought probably from the Crimea on Genoan ships across across Europe. But this also reminds us of just how globally connected Chaucer's world was. Because again, I was talking just now about our expectations about the medieval period. People are often very surprised to find out just how globally connected it was. So in Chaucer's London, in 14th century London, you could buy spices that had come from Indonesian islands, for example. So trade routes were crisscrossing the world. And indeed, there was a huge appetite amongst affluent English people at this time for spices, for fabrics that had come from a very long way away, you know, via lots and lots of, of middlemen of course. And Chaucer himself, as the son of a merchant, was very much aware of these global connections. He grew up in Vintry Ward, which was a, an area of London which, were, which abutted the Thames, the huge river coming into London, and he grew up watching the ships come in, laden with all of these interesting products from all over the world, and then go out again laden with English wool, which was, so wool was England's great product. And later on, as an adult, one of the jobs that Chaucer had was he was a customs officer and the wool key. So he was dealing with wool customs. So his life was very much embedded in that mercantile context and in an awareness of the exchange of things. And of course, he was also very interested in the exchange of ideas. Chaucer himself was a multilingual man. All educated men at this time in England were trilingual, speaking English, French and Latin educated women would be at least bilingual in, in English and French. He also knew Italian and in his own life he, he traveled very widely. He got court appointments, became a member of the royal household and traveled to lots of different places in Europe as well as living a very cosmopolitan kind of life when he was at home in London and in royal and noble households. So his life was I mean, very globally connected and, and very interesting and diverse. He had lots of different kinds of jobs. You know, he was a member of parliament at one point. He went on trading missions. He fought in the Hundred Years' War, was taken prisoner and ransomed. It's a really, really rich and fascinating life. Wow. Um, and, and, and what was England's position? Uh, obviously, this is before the empire. Um, and, and yeah. 
Chaucer was connected to the royal court and to the king, and as you mentioned, traveled and fought and taken prisoner. Where where was England now as a as a power in Europe? So in some ways, England is quite a, a peripheral power in the world, certainly. The, the kind of the it's not central. Um it's on the edges, on the edges of maps at this time, you know, because because people weren't aware of the, the things that, that lay to the to the West. And when we think globally, all these luxurious products were coming from 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 the East, you know, places, the, these these rich realms in India and further East. So England is, is on the edges compared to that. And in Europe, it has it has aspirations to be more important. But as I was just saying, Latin and French are the important languages, for instance. France is a more important power with a far more authoritative monarchy as well. The Holy Roman Empire, which stretched across many lands, which are now now Germany and around around Germany and northern Italy, was still a very important power. Of course, the papacy and the different states in Italy lots of those lots of those countries city states were important as well so england is it is a player certainly um but it's by no means dominating europe no one would would have thought that and at this time it's fighting wars with france and there's a there's a kind of eddying tides of of power and authority depending on who's winning. So there were some very dramatic victories in the mid 14th century by England in Poitiers and Crecy, for instance, in France. But then later on, it's not doing so well. And in the 15th century, so after Chaucer's death, that's when you get Agincourt and, and a, a brief kind of resurgence of, of England's power in the Hundred Years' War. Um, but really, it's, a, I suppose, a moderate European power at this time, starting to gain wealth through this wool trade. And, and um, having been multilingual, at least three, four languages, Chaucer wrote primarily or exclusively in what language? Um, and, and what is that indicative of who he thought his audience was when he wrote? Yeah, so... Chaucer wrote in English. Um, all the poems that we know of that he wrote were in English. He may have written in French in his early, early life, but we don't have firm evidence of that. And his choice to write in English is really, really interesting. Um, and people have often seen this as a sign of, of a kind of nationalism. And I don't think that is the right way to think about what Chaucer is doing. So, first of all, he's not the only person writing in English. This is a kind of trend at this time that various authors are beginning to write more in English. There had been an unbroken tradition of poetry in English, but it would have been more normal for Chaucer to do perhaps what his contemporary John Gower did, which was write three poems, one in French, one in English, one in Latin. Whereas Chaucer really goes for English. And what he does that's particularly interesting is that he wrote English poems in particular forms that before had only existed in French. So his first long poem, The Book of the Duchess, is written in the form of a what we call a dit amoureux, a love na narrative, which had previously been a French form. And his audience would only be used to hearing this kind of poetry in French. And Chaucer is, is trying it out in English. And partly, I think this is really important, Chaucer is following a European trend. So Chaucer was hugely influenced by Tuscan poets, by the great Italian poets, 
Dante and Boccaccio are enormously important to Chaucer. And Dante, back at the kind of turn of the 13th, 14th century, had written the Divine Comedy, written lots of other texts as well, in which he said, look, the vernacular is good enough. You know, we can, it is good enough. We don't have to write in Latin. We can write in our own vernacular languages. And Chaucer, as I say, drew very much on Dante, even more on Boccaccio, who also wrote in the vernacular Tuscan. And so I think he was trying to see if he could do in English what his great um, predecessors had done in Tuscan, in their, their Italian dialect. In terms of audience, there are losses and gains, because if you write in your vernacular, you are not going to get such an international audience. But at home, you're going to get a broader audience. So Chaucer is able to reach a more diverse range of, of classes. I mean, to be clear, he's not writing for your average plowman, but you can reach you can reach more people. Um, nobles were still mainly reading French texts at this time, but Chaucer is writing also for merchants and scribes. And also you can reach more women as well as men if you're writing in the vernacular. And of course, long term, it was a very, very smart decision because it gave him much a much greater audience in in, in later centuries as well. And I think though that that Chaucer often talks in his poetry about the importance of listening to voices from different classes and trying to speak to all kinds of different people. So his language choice is also reflected in his poetics more generally. So he wrote lots and lots of different texts, but his most famous poem is, of course, The Canterbury Tales, which is an extraordinary tale collection where lots of different people tell their stories. And if I can just talk a little bit about why that's so important, he draws on lots of models. So other, other people had written tale collections. Boccaccio, in particular, had written an Italian tale collection called the Decameron. See, he has 10 tellers who for 10 days each tell a story. So you end up with 100 stories. And it's, it's a wonderful, you know, wonderful text. But all the tellers are socially identical in Boccaccio's Decameron. So they are all gently born, beautiful, young, attractive, related to each other, friends. And, and gently born is the most important thing here. They are all of the, the authoritative class. When Chaucer writes his tale collection, he gathers together a really kind of motley crew of people. There is the, the highest class person is a knight. At the low end, there is a, a plowman. In between, there's a very mixed group. So you have, for instance, you have a merchant, you have a lawyer, you have a sailor, lots of different kinds of people. And the Canterbury Tales begins with a tale told by the most authoritative person. The knight tells the first tale. And then the innkeeper, who's in charge at this point, says, OK, well, the, 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 the person of highest secular status told the first tale. The next one should be told by the person of highest religious status, the monk. And at this point, the miller, who's a low class, vulgar, drunk man, interrupts and says, no, I'm, I'm going to tell a tale now. I've had a few drinks. I've got a great tale to tell. Everyone listen to me. And people go, oh, you're drunk, really? And he goes, yeah, yeah, And they go, oh, okay, then, okay, you tell your tale. And then the tale that he tells is absolutely brilliant, packed with imagery, beautifully told, hilarious, very rude, parodies and mocks the knight's tale. 
which has just preceded it. And in a sense, it is actually the same story as the Knight's, the Knight's Tale, but in a different genre from a different perspective. And after this point, we never go back to hierarchical tale telling. The group takes on its own energy. Different people tell tales. People say, say oh, I'm going to tell a tale. I'm going to rebut what you just said. I think it's my turn. Sometimes the host says, will you tell a tale? And someone says yes or no. And so we move on into this organic world of tale telling where everyone you know, asserts their right to have their voice heard. This is a really, really important moment in literature because Chaucer, I think, is saying to us, look, you don't have to like all the stories, but we need to be exposed to lots of different points of view, lots of different perspectives. And in particular, not just listen to the voice of authority. You know, all the people in authority are going to have similar perspectives. Let's actually hear what different kinds of people have to say and then make our own judgments. We may not agree with them, but we should listen to lots of different perspectives. So obviously, this, this you're, you're, you're spelling out now, uh, you know, that Chaucer has been called the father of English literature. Obviously, you've touched upon this. If you could just like summarize the points of, of, of why he was called that. And um, is, is, it, is it interesting that it was a poet as opposed to one who did not wrote, but not poetry that is considered to be the father of English literature? I mean, that's a really interesting question. And I think uh, the way that we today think about poetry is quite different to the way that someone in the 14th or 15th century thought about poetry and poets. Because I think today, when we think about poetry, we mainly think about lyric poetry rather than narrative poetry. So we think more about short poems, about poems that might be more about an image or a mood rather than about long narrative poetry. And that is largely, I think, because we have the novel for long narratives. Whereas in classical times and in medieval times, long narratives, long stories, ripping yarns, these were told in poetry. So in classical times, you know, by people like Homer and then Virgil. And then in medieval times, you have people such as Dante and Chaucer, and they write their good stories in poetry, not in prose. Um, so epics, great romances, these tend to be written in verse form. So I think it's it's quite um, what we would expect that the you know, that the 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 great early English English writers would be poets. Um, I think that's that's not surprising. In terms of of how he gets to be thought of as the father of English literature. So I think that partly this is about the fact that he he is simply extremely good. He is an extremely good writer and he writes a huge amount of, of, of English literature in all kinds of, of different genres. But he also gets kind of taken up in the 15th century in a very specific way. So this is very much a posthumous idea of Chaucer, where other poets in the 15th century start to talk about him as someone that is their, their, their influence, their source. And they start to talk about him as a father figure, as someone that's, that they want to, um, to imitate. But then I think that idea of, of fatherhood um, in some ways does him a disservice because it makes people think of him as himself, very authoritative, very patriarchal. And in a way, I think it it makes us forget the fact that actually he was pioneering and innovative and edgy. He was young once. He did all kinds of interesting things. Um, 
he was a great inventor. I mean, he, for instance, invented the iambic pentameter, which became the building block of English poetry. So the 10 syllable, five stress line that Shakespeare then took up. So he did do lots of new things. He introduced lots of new words into the language. But I think the idea of, of fatherhood kind of takes away from some of his experimental qualities. You know, no one thinks of their dad as a great innovative experimental kind of person. And it makes people think of him as very serious and very canonical. And he has become, you know, for many people, he'll be the earliest English poet that they're aware of or that they or that they read. And that idea of him as part of the canon, I think, is something that he would have found really strange because what he's often doing is talking about the problems of the canon. So he writes a poem called The House of Fame, in which he says, well, it's really random what goes into the canon. Lots of good stuff gets forgotten, isn't awarded fame for one reason or another. In The Wife of Bath's prologue, so this is a prologue told by... Um, a very interesting female character, she says, well, the problem with the canon is that it's all written by men. So there are all these texts which say terrible things about women, but it's because all the texts have been written by men and women haven't had the chance to tell their own story. So Joss actually really suspicious of the idea of a canon of texts that are acceptable as opposed to texts that are not acceptable and challenges that very frequently. So I think for him, it would have been very odd that he is now often the kind of the first person that people study in their survey of British literature courses. So, so, so here you have Chaucer. He is, during his lifetime, connected to the great households. He's connected to the king, to royalty. Yet, on the other hand, he gives voice to non-authorities. So is, is, this, is, there, is this a tension between his personal life and his writing? And, and how does this um, find expression in his relationship to the church and his personal religious beliefs? So Chaucer has a very interesting social position in that he straddles two worlds, the world of the city and merchants and the world of the court royalty nobility. And that gives him this position on, on the edge of things where he can, he can almost look at these different aspects of society and make judgments of them from always a kind of, he can always take a peripheral position, he can step back. But he also, I think with these two, moving between these two different kinds of realms gives him all kinds of opportunities. So he probably learned Italian because he was brought up amongst merchants. There were lots and lots of Italian bankers, Italian merchants in London in his childhood. He was brought up in this ward, which had lots and lots of immigrants in it. But then later, when he got court appointments, the king wanted someone to go on Italian missions. Now, most people in court don't know Italian, but here's this kid who'd come from a mercantile background he does know Italian, so he can be chosen to go on these missions. So he was able to kind of take things from these different areas of his life and, and use them. So I think that mixed element is important. I think that sense of, of being both partly a figure of authority himself, but also interested in the voices of, of other people. I mean, that is a really interesting aspect of Chaucer. He's never a person of enormous authority himself, but compared to most people, of course, he, he, he did have a, a very good position. But I think that he, he had a, a mind which was able to go far beyond his own experience in that way. You know, he is very much someone who wants to hear other people 
tell stories hear other people's perspectives and there was something I think very unusual in him in that he was actually able to think about the importance of listening to diverse points of view at the same time there is something fictional about that so in the Canterbury Tales of the stories that he tells of course they haven't really come from a miller or a merchant they have usually come from literary sources by authoritative people so there is something um something yeah, fictionalized about the way that he is talking about those different sources. Um, but there's a great moment in one of his poems where he is berate the, the Jeffrey figure, his own kind of avatar figure is berated by an authority figure who says to him, you just read too many books. And what you need to do is go and listen to your neighbors who live at your door. And maybe Chaucer really did do that. You know, maybe he really was very interested in talking to other people in going and listening to their stories. Maybe he did that on his travels where, you know, all these extensive long travels, obviously he wasn't just hopping on a plane and getting somewhere as we used to do before COVID. You know, he was traveling for weeks and weeks across European landscapes. Who knows what, what stories he, he heard. But you also asked about his relationship with the church. Now, any medieval English person at this time is going to have had a constant relationship with the church you know from almost the day of their birth the church was an important presence and although people were very critical of the church at this time for most people there was a real difference between criticizing the ideas of the church and criticizing its practice so in other words it was very common to criticize the corruption of the church as Chaucer did very frequently and thoroughly in the Canterbury Tales for example that was a very different thing from actually challenging the beliefs of the Catholic Church which were fundamental for most people in um in 14th century England. However, at this time, a, a heretical movement did come about um, called Lollardy, um, which was begun by someone called John Wycliffe, who challenged various aspects of the church. In Chaucer's lifetime, this was really a movement of reform. So initially, it wasn't seen as a movement of heresy. It was seen as people who wanted to reform the church and was quite similar in many ways to lots of very orthodox people at this time who were interested in trying to have a more personal relationship with God. So, so there was a kind of trend at this time for being a little bit suspicious of the, the extremity of the authority of priests. So because at this time it was, it was hard to access God except through priests who, who who had control over the sacraments and there were lots of people at this time who were known as as mystics for instance who said that they had a personal connection with god and lots of very orthodox people tried to get permission to have private altars for instance to have a slightly more private kind of connection with god so Wycliffe was initially part of that kind of movement who was saying, well, let's have the Bible in English so that people can access it more, more easily. Um, and, then, and, and he criticised the wealth of the church, for instance. And a lot of people liked that a great deal. But then he went further and started to question various aspects of the sacraments. And that was then taken up by more people. And eventually it became seen as a as a profoundly heretical movement, a kind of um, proto-Protestant movement in a way. But in Chaucer's time, lots of people he knew were very attracted to this new doctrine. And I think there, are, there were certainly aspects of it that were appealing to Chaucer 
and to, as I say, many of the people that he was friends with. And that part of it, part of that movement we can see is quite akin to Chaucer's other interests in that it was about partly about saying, let people think a bit more for themselves about the church. Let's try and access things in English rather than Latin. So I think we can see those movements as being something that Chaucer was interested in. That doesn't make him a heretic. And I don't think he was. I think he was interested in, in new ideas.